This Chad and Cheese Cult Brand Podcast is supported by Smashfly, recruiting technology built for the talent lifecycle and big believers in building relationships with brands, not jobs. Let Smashfly help tell your story and keep relationships at the heart of your CRM. For more information, visit smashfly.com today. Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. We're back. I, I can't get enough of this cult brand learning shit, man. This has been freaking amazing. Today, we're fortunate enough to have an amazing cult brand expert, Icon, back on the show. He's back. He's back, people. It's Douglas Atkin, former global <laughs> head of community at Airbnb, partner, chief community officer at meetup.com, and all around smart dude, not to mention author of the highly acclaimed book, The Culting of Brands. Welcome back, Douglas. Wow, Douglas, that's a hell of an intro. And it was great, wasn't it? Yes, <laughs> please start every day off like that for me. Ultra changing, <laughs> yeah, religious experience, yeah. wow. I'll take it all, I'll take it all. <laughs> this is this is our third installment of Douglas's How to Live Your Purpose series, which is really intended as a compliment to his writings over at medium.com, but most importantly, to focus on how to become and stay a cult brand. We, we should all at this point know why we want to become one. This is the how. So uh, today we're going to talk about make plan B decisions. Why, why are we talking about plan B decisions and not plan A decisions, Douglas? I need to say that. Well, because one thing I realized when I was started working at Airbnb with the founders is that they, that's what they refer to as the decisions um, they make when they don't want to follow convention, when they don't want to follow the path that most people normally take or is expected. Gotcha. Um, and instead, they want to take, and that's plan A. Plan B decisions are the alternative. The, the big problem with plan B decisions is there is no plan B, nearly always. You have to kick bollocks scramble, as we say in England, <laughs> to make it all happen and invent it from scratch. So, it, you know, normally you, you're, you're faced with one of these decisions when you're facing a crisis. And the thing you want most of all is a really easy sort of off-the-shelf plan or path to take when you're dealing with this crisis. But no, we do plan B decisions at Airbnb, which basically means inventing something that no one's ever done before and doing it, you know, sort of under huge pressure. Uh, because we, we find that plan A, the normal route, is unacceptable. So a good example of that is... Um, is uh, I guess one of the first plan B decisions I was ever directly involved with. And that was, I'd been working at Airbnb for about six months. And uh, the New York um, Attorney General, Schneiderman, uh -huh. had issued Airbnb with a subpoena to get all of the information of all of the hosts in New York. At the time, it was about 15,000 uh, people. And we knew in our guts that we didn't want to comply with this subpoena um, because that is a huge, we felt it was a massive data overreach. It was a huge sort of phishing expedition. That had to scare the shit out of you guys, though, because, I mean, the AG... Well, yeah, the, the Attorney General of New York is sort of famous or infamous in that and no one ever... Uh, says no to the Attorney General of New York. Right. And bear in mind, this is sort of middle of 2013. So 
Airbnb was not well known. In fact, most people hadn't heard of us. We were this tiny little pipsqueak startup <laughs> from California. Um, and uh, we actually, after sweating it through and having long sort of uh, uh, evening meetings with all of us together, decided to take the Attorney General of New York to court and squash his subpoena. When we told the Attorney General of New York that, they said, what? <laughs> Do you even have lawyers? You know, and actually we had one at the time, Darren, who was our, our one lawyer. Uh, he said, Do you? and they said to us, do you know that no one ever says no to the Attorney General of New York? In fact, last week, we just got billions out of the international banks for causing the 2008 depression. And you think you are going to take us to court? <laughs> so we, um, it was a big, it felt like an existential threat actually doing this, but we felt that we had to do it to support our hosts. I mean, one of our sort of core, one of our core values, which we'll talk about in subsequent uh, sessions is be a host, which means, you know, be a host to everyone, look after people, make them feel like they belong, you know, be by their support their side and support them. What we felt we needed to do was be a host to our hosts. We couldn't abandon them and just hand over all of their information, their addresses, their phone numbers and everything else. And, and our hosts were really panicked. I mean, at the time, my title at the time and my role was global head of community. So I was holding uh, weekly or biweekly uh, town halls with 200 plus hosts in New York City, flying there, uh, out there every week or every other, every other week um, and hearing how they felt about it. And they felt incredibly victimized and scared. They called it a witch hunt. Because previously, uh, a few months previously, we had won another action, actually, a separate legal action, where one host was fined tens of thousands of dollars um, because it contravened some hosting contributes some sort of arcane local law. So they were really, really scared. And, and one of the arguments, one of the reasons we decided to say no to the Attorney General of New York, you know, beyond the fact that it was one of our values, is that, <laughs> is that uh, you know, I was, I was basically being the advocate for the hosts in these meetings um, and saying, we have to stand by our hosts, we have to stand by our hosts. If we don't, you know, they'll abandon us. Um, uh, but anyway, it's just the right thing to do. And um, I had freshly arrived from Airbnb from having worked in the field of movement making you know, starting movements for social change. And Brian turned to me and said, so do you think you could start a movement to, of our hosts to take political action and change the laws and, and defeat and help, you know, change opinion against this subpoena? And I said, yes, I think I can. And uh, of course, inside I was going, oh, shit, what am I talking myself <laughs> into? But, you know, I did actually think we could because I'd, I'd already met hundreds, if not thousands of hosts who were incredibly passionate and willing to do anything. And so that's what we did. We said no to um, the Attorney General of New York and we actually won and we um, turned around public opinion in New York in favor of Airbnb and um, and that was a plan B. So the plan B was was really, really hard. I mean, it, we, we, we actually ended up doing things that no other company had ever done before, like starting a movement of hosts in, in New York and guests and everyone else to change the law. So I recruited a lot of uh, uh, grassroots organizers from the Obama campaigns of 2008, 2012, um, because I knew that they'd written the, you know, the kind of the game plan on, on how you take ordinary people and turn them into political activists and lobby politicians and change laws and so on. And combining that with my background in movement expertise, I worked incredibly hard, you know, since that, you know, from the moment we said no to the AG and took him to court, I was basically spending every waking hour for the next uh, 
five or six months until December, doing all kinds of things to um, recruit and mobilize our hosts to take political action. We had a petition um, that was started by a host uh, who um, was hosting because she was a, a vet. She'd come back from, um, from war and wanted to change her life and uh, go to college, and she was hosting to pay for college. And so we started a petition saying, please change the law. It's ridiculous that hosting is illegal in New York. And we expected about 10,000. We really, really wanted about 10,000 signatures. And we ended up getting 236,000 signatures on that petition, which then in turn got the attention of the press. We had, we trained hosts to give, you know, press interviews. Then we um, raised money for an ad uh, in the um, Albany Times, I think it's called, you know, to lobby politicians to change the law. We trained all of our hosts to go and, and turn up to legislators' offices and make their case and tell their stories about why, you know, how they've got through the recession and were able to stay in the city because of Airbnb, all these kinds of things. It was a huge, pro- it was basically running a political campaign. Yeah, the hosts almost sound like a labor union. Yeah, no, they were. It was, it was amazing. And, and, you know, they all, we never paid anyone. The really cool thing is that the passion and the commitment in these town hall meetings we were having, they were very, I mean, one of the policies I I wanted to make sure we did was we had to inform our hosts of everything, certainly before they saw it in the press. Because it was like one of the big top stories in New York over those months, this whole fight with the AG plus, you know, Airbnb in New York and the issue of hosting. And so I said, um, they're terrified. They need to feel like they're on the inside. So we have to inform them about everything all of the time. And certainly before we tell the press. So I had our, our lobbyist and our one lawyer, our one lobbyist and our one lawyer, um, David Hampman and Darren, to uh, give sort of radio interviews, basically, online radio interviews, uh, telling the latest status on everything. We had these town hall meetings where I flew Brian Chesky and myself and the lawyer and the, and the lobbyist to, uh, over to talk to hosts every week or every other week. It was a lot of work. And, and as I say, no one had ever hired grassroots organizers before. No one had ever turned their users into a movement using these political techniques. And it was a huge amount of, of work. Yeah, I don't think consumers ever think about you know, users of, of a, an internet service being mobilized for political purposes. No, no. This is really fascinating. No, and I, but I kind of knew it would work because they weren't just ordinary customers. They were passionate. I'd heard their stories about how Airbnb had changed their lives, you know, whether it was turning them into an entrepreneur so that they could give up their legal secretary job and, and, and start the opera company they always wanted to do. That was a woman called Maria in Jersey City or or whether it was simply being able to keep your apartment in New York when you've been fired during the recession. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Do you think the political piece helps serve the cultural goals of a company? In other words, uniting to fight or, or fight for a common purpose I assume that helps build the culture, but does it change it as well? What did that event eventually did? You know, us saying no to the AG, AG, fighting him and mobilizing our hosts to also fight him and take political action. What it did actually was become what I call a meaningful moment in a company's history. And a meaningful moment is 
is a moment with, where there's lots of meaning attached, where you normally stand on principle for something, often at great risk to yourselves. So the risk to ourselves here was, you know, we had no idea what the Attorney General could do to us if we lost. You know, it, he could ban us completely from New York City, which was our largest market at the time. It was a significant part of the business. So um, this was a huge, you know, big deal for us at the time. But we decided to face that threat of extinction in New York City, potentially, our biggest market, because it was the right thing to do. And we kept saying that it's just the right thing to do to stand by our hosts and, and to help them change their local laws so that they could host, you know, legally, happily and securely and, and invest all this time, this money and this expertise in doing all of that. And so that did actually become, you know, it was, it was very reflective back into the culture of Airbnb, to your point, in that it became like one of those moments with our backs against the walls, we said, uh, we're going to stand on principle and do this. And we did it. And then it worked out well. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Facebook's recent issues with the government and the contrast in terms of, you know, they have a, a billion and a half users, like pretty much everyone uses Facebook. But I don't remember any any lobbying, any groups, you know, picketing Congress right, no. uh, or boycotting, you know, anything in defense of Facebook, whereas your members did. Now they kind of screwed up. <laughs> you were just fighting for something you guys believed in. But is there is there something in in Airbnb's culture versus what Facebook is doing that makes that happen, that there's not the grassroots support for them when the government comes knocking? Well, I can't, I can't speak for Facebook in internal culture. I don't know it at all. So uh, what I can say for our culture is that there is it's this sort of default thing, which is how are we going to stand by our hosts, basically? I mean, remember, almost everyone in Airbnb is a host themselves, you know, and certainly a guest. And the other thing, by the way, is, uh, and this came up a lot when we were, when I was getting the, the founders to focus on the core values and the employees on redoing the core values. There's this, there's this real sort of um, human, humanity, humanness, hostiness feeling at Airbnb, which is, you know, we're all in it for humans, Compared to, say, for example, Uber, with whom we're often bracketed, where we, we, we feel we're, even though we're often talked about in the same articles because we're both leaders of the sharing economy and so on, we see ourselves as completely and utterly 100% different, especially culturally, because they seem to be doing everything they possibly can to remove humans from driving and from everything else. Whereas what we're trying to do is celebrate humanity and its diversity and creating, you know, intimate, personal you know, relationships and things between guests and hosts and each other. So there is this automatic default position, I think, in everyone at Airbnb from the top to the bottom, which is, you know, uh, grassroots-ish alongside the host. We're all in it together. The other thing that's really important is probably to say is that because we're a platform, you know, for hosts and guests to meet each other and do what they need to do, it means the goals of hosts in particular and guests, but hosts in particular, are very closely aligned with, that, with us. You know, everything we're doing basically is to provide a platform for hosts and guests to get together. So when hosts are threatened, we're threatened. <laughs> when we're threatened, hosts are threatened. And so that's, that's sort of different in a way from many old style companies like the old packaged goods companies or car companies where they're producing things at a profit and the goals of a customer aren't necessarily the same goals of a, of a corporation. Whereas in this case, it is. Yeah, I think, I think Facebook in particular has this sort of cult of personality around Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. And I think if you asked a thousand people on the street, you know, who founded Airbnb, they'd have no idea. But do you do you know anyone that that 
does Airbnb or anyone who rents, you know, Airbnb, they would know that. Oh yeah. Um, and I think maybe having a culture that's sort of invisible in terms of someone pulling the strings or you, we own your ass kind of mentality, yeah. I think really helps in, in the end. It's stuff like what Airbnb faced with the, with the government. So when all this, and it's also speaking to this point about this sort of um, grassroots inclination, if you like. So that, those sort of, it felt like a long, dark tunnel of months. I'm just recalling it, that period from about September, October to December in 2013. And there was only, again, about... Um, I don't know, 200, 250 of us in HQ at the time. Whenever I saw Brian, he would like do a sort of fist um, symbol and say, resist, you know, or the revolution. Fight the power. Yes, it was. because He loved, <laughs> he loved that, that I was doing this. You know, that, in fact, when I had first joined Airbnb full time, this was in um, January 2013, when I first joined, I went to hit Brian very early and said, um, I think we need to create a movement for the sharing economy. Because I keep getting emails from other companies in the sharing economy like Uber and Lyft and Sidecar and so on to do the same, asking me to do the same things about signing petitions. Why don't we all do this together? We're all in it together. And it's a new economy. We're going to be bumping up against the old laws. All of us, all the sharing economy companies are. And also you know, all of the hosts or the drivers and things are all going to be facing the same things. We should start start a, a people's movement, and, and I said, I've just come from this area, working in this area. I kind of know how to do that, and and he said yes. And then, <laughs> so the first six months, from January to June, he and I did what he called um, a startup within a startup. So he and I launched a, um, a grassroots movement called Peers. We raised about one and a half million dollars uh, donations from a lot of the sort of heavy breathers on the Silicon Valley, the, from uh, Reid Hoffman, from the Omdiar Group, the founders of eBay, and you know from all these people uh, because they also saw the same the same need. And so, and he loved it. You know, we and so basically Brian and I did this startup together within a startup, which was Airbnb. And um, we launched Peers. I hired someone from the Democratic Party to run it uh, called. Natalie Foster, um, who was well known at the time. And it was actually through that, through peers that we did this campaign in New York against the Attorney General. Uh, but they also did campaigns for Lyft and, and others. So the, and the reason I'm mentioning that is, yes, Brian loves, you know, he's, in fact, all three founders, there's a, there's a sort of inbuilt DNA part of them, which is uh, you're bucking the man. You know what I mean? Sort of like fighting the man. In, in fact, they they have a different term for it again. And again, all these sort of big, important values and defining characteristics came up when I was doing a revisit of the core values a few years later. It's part of a value. And in fact, there is a value. There's a couple of values at Airbnb, which is embrace the adventure and be a serial entrepreneur, which is all about uh, daring to do plan B. You know, it's it, the people we hire, the people, how we train them, the kind of the culture of Airbnb is all about plan Bism, if you like. It's it's not being content with how it's normally done and doing it better or doing it differently because of that. Yeah, I'm curious. Like plan B to me sounds a lot like a pivot. Is it just a pivot by a different name or is there a significant difference between a company pivoting and having a plan B? It's it's probably a, a bad description for what we do, but but basically what it is is so plan A in that example with the Attorney General would have been complying with his subpoena and handing over 15,000 hosts' information. That's what every other company had done in the past and probably would do in the future. And we said, no, we're not going to do that. But then we had to say, but what are we going to do? Because if we take him to court, we can't just do that. We have to bring our hosts, mobilize them, feel like they're part of something alongside us 
fighting this unfair subpoena, but more than that, fighting this, these old laws that are getting in the way of this new economy. And so we need to like mobilize them and make them feel part of a bigger movement together with us. You know, so we're standing side by side. And that's why we did all those town halls flying 3,000 miles across the country every week or every other week with the founders and, and everyone else to, to talk to and listen to our hosts face-to-face in, in a WeWork, actually, in, in Soho. Everything you did was new because basically everything we were doing had never been done before. There was no marketing book or playbook you could buy at the store about how you do what we did because we were inventing you know, not just a new company or even a new market or even a new economy. We were inventing a new behavior as well, which is getting strangers to trust each other enough that they will feel happy and content to have a complete stranger they've never met before sleeping in their bed at night. You know, so it was like changing everything. <laughs> and so a place in that context, it's both liberating because you, because after that, you know, when you're doing something so radical, you know, you don't want to do the status quo for anything. But but we generally had to make everything up as we were going along because it hadn't been done before. Yeah, and I, I love how this has become commonplace. The things that were so radical back then are becoming normal place today. Douglas, appreciate it uh, for our listeners. Um, where can they find out more about you? This is part three in a mini part series. Uh, on our next edition, we'll be talking about long-term culture goals. But Douglas, for you, any Twitter accounts you want to point people to or websites? You can find me on LinkedIn and I'm, run, I'm writing this series on Medium about how Airbnb um, found its purpose and why it's a good one and then how Airbnb lives its purpose of which uh, doing Plan B's is one. Outstanding. Thank you, Douglas. You're welcome. This has been the Chat and Cheese Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single show. And be sure to check out our sponsors because they make it all possible. For more, visit chadcheese.com. Oh yeah, you're welcome. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.